cool beans. Don't say that. It's not cool. <sighs> what? What? Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird tastes. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now, here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. So what's been on your mind this week? A lot of things. One of the things that we've talked about before, and I know it's kind of becoming a theme on the show, mm-hmm. is talking about demographics and demographic change. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that very important moment when populations start declining in different places. Right. And one of the things that I've been reading a fair amount about in the last few weeks mm-hmm. is demographic situation in Eastern Europe. And I don't know particularly if people find all of this stuff fascinating like I do, but it's an interesting and almost unique situation. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it resonates with a lot of the things that we're seeing in the United States and a lot of the stuff you're seeing in rural China, but it's the place that it's happening on the largest scale and it's the place where it's happening across national borders, right? Because the EU has such flexibility in terms of people being able to move within it that some of the Eastern members of the EU just have their people, essentially all of the young people or most of the young people are just moving West. And so you see even large countries like Poland where millions and millions of people have moved to Ireland, France, the UK, like they've just moved West, Germany, obviously. Right. But there's still a really large population. And you see that a place like Poland is having still pretty good economic growth because, one, they were so poor before the fall of the Soviet Union that they've had a long way to go. But also they're receiving people from the east, right, east of Poland. They're receiving people from, like, Hungary, Romania. I mean, I know that that's, like, south of Poland. But, like, they're, they're getting people from the east. That's the point. Right. From smaller countries out there. But... It's fascinating to look at because what you see is a lot of young people are leaving to get work, right? And there are really low birth rates. And the older population, unlike Western Europe, is rather poor by comparison to the Uh younger population. Like if you look at the U.S. on average, the elderly are the wealthiest people. Right. If you look at Eastern Europe, it's not the elderly because they grew up in the communist era, right? They grew up behind the Iron Curtain. They grew up before you could really make and save wealth. Right. And so you have this situation where the richest people and the most productive people, the youngest people, mm-hmm. are all leaving. There aren't very many children. And so you have this rapidly aging population that is also declining very quickly. And right. the best example of this is Bulgaria. And it, right. it's just, it's interesting to me because Bulgaria, you have a country of, oh, I forget how large it is, but I think it's like 7 million, something like that. Okay. Let me just check that. Yeah, seven, it's 7 million. Okay. And Bulgaria, for those that aren't up on their geography, is right above Turkey. It's basically as far south and east as you can go in Europe. And they're just having their entire young population drained because they were one of the poorer members that joined the EU. 
and they have one of the least productive economies mm-hmm. and lowest incomes. And I just think it's an interesting thing to think about because when you look at to to make the comparison to the U.S., you see the same thing, but you see the same thing going from the poor center of the country and like rural parts of the center of the country, right. just being drained to the coastal areas and Texas. You know, like mm-hmm. I guess Texas is a coastal area, but you look at places like Michigan, you look at places like Illinois, and you know, Chicago is this huge city. Right. It's had its population slowly dropping for 20 years, you know, even as incredibly large and robust and significant as that city is, it still uh-huh. can't maintain itself against this inexorable pull out to the coast. Right. And it's harder to understand why that is in the U.S. than it is in Europe. But I think it's just it's a, it's a really interesting trend because like like we talked about before, right. and this is why I, I'm putting this under the guise of follow up in China you have some of these heavily industrialized regions out in kind of more rural areas, like in the Northeast, uh-huh. that have had really low birth rates for a long time. And now you also have, over the last 10, 15 years, millions of people moving from those regions to the big cities, moving to Tianjin, moving to Beijing. Right. And you just see, one, the economy of that region just collapse, but you also see the population of it collapse. Mm-hmm. Is there any like implications specifically that you find interesting about it, or is it just the pattern? Well, the pattern is interesting of itself, but how you deal with that situation is also uh, difficult and interesting. Like if, if you think about it, it's easier if you have a large country and people are moving within it. Like right. if you look at the United States, because you have Social Security as your national safety net. Right for the elderly or Medicare or whatever it is. And uh-huh. that will kind of use the wealth of the richer regions to uh-huh. support the elderly in those poor regions, even if the younger people move away. Right. But it's much more complicated when you look at someplace like Europe, where Bulgaria is not only poorer than the rest of the EU, but since a large portion of the young, wealthier, higher earners in the society who would pay taxes to support the elderly are moving out of that country mm-hmm. and into other countries, all of the taxes that they're paying into safety nets are going toward safety nets in these other countries. Right. So you have this group of elderly people, like suddenly it becomes very difficult to support them. It becomes very difficult to maintain a pension system and maintain those social safety nets because when you greatly reduce the tax take from companies and from individuals and yet you don't decrease really the elderly at all you don't decrease the people that are taking that money Uh it's it's just becomes extremely difficult to sustain so what does bulgaria do well it's interesting because this ties into politics as well because when what you see in a lot of eastern european countries like i i think most people know that populism has kind of swept through the rich world generally Uh mm-hmm But Eastern Europe, it's interesting because there's a particular kind of nationalist populism that is kind of, I don't want to say it's racist in tone, but but there is, there's very much a desire not to have immigration in places like Hungary and places like Bulgaria and places like Poland. Right, those and, places that, well, I guess with Hungary and Bulgaria, wouldn't they need immigration? Like, wouldn't that help them if all the people are leaving? Right, so a lot of 
kind of classical economic arguments would say you want immigrants because immigrants grow the economy. And especially if you're facing these sort of demographic problems, you would want immigrants uh -huh. because immigrants tend to be younger than the average population. Immigrants tend to pay more in taxes than they take out when they arrive, at least. Maybe not over the course of their lives. So yes, you're right. A lot of people would argue that they need them, but they don't want, I guess, their cultures and their ethnicities to be mixed with other people. They don't want it to be diluted or what have you. Ah, uh, um, yes. Yeah. The sensible reason why you don't want different people in your country. To avoid mixed racing. Ugh. Am I right? <laughs> the, the, the the mixing of the races, I, I think, is a, <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a, a s silly thing. But I do think that their fear around religion is a little bit more founded just because when you have a place where the population is declining rapidly and you're looking at the immigrants that would be coming in are people who generally have quite a few more children than the local population. Uh -huh. And those people are of a different religion that often has very, very different worldview. Uh -huh. The potential for your society to be radically changed by this is not insignificant, you know? Right. Like, if you look it's at the refugees kinda... from Syria and all the people that have fled Syria, that's several million people. Turkey's taken most of those people. Mm -hmm. And Bulgaria is right on the other side of Turkey. Right. And it's like, if all those people went from Turkey to Bulgaria, suddenly this place of seven million people has two million Syrians. Well, you know, that completely changes the makeup of the country. And not that that would actually happen, but, like, I think that's a fear that is not totally irrational I suppose because if you had a, suddenly a large portion of the population that was Muslim that could change what your laws are could change what is acceptable in terms of the attire of people and even consumption of pork and things like that like that that's going to change what you have in your society and that's not necessarily what they want but the interesting thing is that they have this nationalism and they don't want these immigrants and what what has happened politically is you have in places like Poland where the government has essentially given additional support and additional handouts to the poor and poor mm -hmm. families and things. And they're becoming more populist and more nationalist. Like as much as this populist wave has swept over all of Europe, it's only really taken hold in the East. Mm -hmm. It's taken hold in Greece. It's taken hold in Poland. It's taken hold in Hungary. It hasn't actually taken over the government in any of the Western right. European countries. And so you have this interesting thing that because the population is getting older and the population uh -huh. is getting poorer, that, you know, that phenomenon that brought Trump to power in the United States where you had poorer, older people voting for him on average. Right, yeah. Well, imagine that if all of the wealthier, younger people just left the country. Well, suddenly his support base is much, much larger proportionally. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. And so that's exactly what you're seeing in Eastern Europe. The reaction to the issue is to make the issue worse as opposed to solving the issue in any way. So anyway, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing and it's a thing to watch because I think we're going to have to watch places as we talked about like Japan and Korea mm -hmm. and Taiwan, but... Even more, I think we'll have to watch Eastern Europe and just see how do they solve these problems because there's no clear solution. Like we've talked before about how if the world's population stops growing, uh -huh. and that is something that we all expect to happen, if that happens, right. 
we have to deal with that. We have to learn how to deal with having countries that don't have populations growing. And the poorest countries are going to be the countries that have to deal with it most because they're the countries that don't get any immigrants. And that's what you're I dealing see. with in Bulgaria, a place that gets no immigrants. Nobody uh -huh. wants to go there, really. Right. I mean, even if people do want to go there, they don't want to let people in. And yet they're also poor and they're also at the front line of dealing with these demographic difficulties. And so they'll be really interesting to watch over the next 10 years as they are grappling increasingly with the difficulties surrounding these issues. My vote is on a dictator that unites all those countries. And then we get well, World War III. Uh, World War uh, III. World War III. Hungary's moving that direction. Yeah, that's just what it sounds like. You know, oh my God, all these Eastern European countries are being like ravaged by some predicament. Somebody will solve their problems. Maybe a very like charismatic, loud speaking person. <laughs> Except all of the world wars, I mean, both of the world wars started in Germany, you know. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess World enough. War One kind of started, it started in the Balkans, so sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah I, mean, and, I mean, yeah, I get that Germany is like, you know, part of Western Europe. That's close enough. Well, a lot you know of people like, consider it Central Europe, not Western Europe. But. See? Well, there you go. Close enough. I've always thought it was neighbor. Western Europe. So, I don't know, just saying. Yeah. Speaking of different geographies, though, we had talked about a long time ago now, I think, you and what you would like in, in cities. Like, I've wanted to come mm -hmm. back to this because it's something that I've thought about so much. And like, what you want in a place to live. And okay. I'm just wondering, have you thought any more about what you would want in a place to live or anything like that? So I have thought about this, actually. Mm, okay. So the main thing I think that I want in a city is cultural diversity. But not for okay. the sake of diversity or anything stupid like that, but for food. <laughs> okay, okay, nice. Because, nice. you know, you don't just want an option or two. You want, like, eight options, nine options. Just sure. never want to be bored of what you're going to eat. And you probably want that food to be a little bit more authentic. Yeah. Like, you yeah. don't want it all kind of bland down. Right. Like yeah. a bastardized version of it. Exactly, yeah. So having a strong, diverse community allows for strong, diverse palate. Mm. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's I'm with the you thing. there. Yeah. It's something I hadn't considered until more recently. Like when I lived in France, they really didn't have very much in terms of diverse food options. It was yeah. pretty much French food. And I mean, they all had some you, other stuff, but it was really bad. Like, all you their ever Asian talked was about really was cool. how much you missed barbecue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But coming to a place like this in Ireland where they have quite a few, I don't even know if it's that they have more immigrants, but like they have a lot more diverse food options. They have so much Asian food and so much American food and barbecue and they've got everything you would want, lots of Mexican food. And it does have an impact on your life when you're eating out a lot. Yeah. So you eat out enough that this would really matter? Yeah. Okay. Or at least have the option. Yeah, sure. Because, I mean, I don't eat out a lot. I like to, you know go out to dinner with my girlfriend hmm. we don't eat in i mean she's pretty limited what do you mean she's limited she is very picky oh, okay very picky eater yeah but you know i try take this spot see how it works out take it to that spot see how it works out so you know a place <laughs> with that kind of diversity just gives me the options to like guinea picker with food yeah see and this is why i enjoy having conversations like this because that's not, it's just not something I would have ever considered as like an actually significant thing to think about. 
but obviously that like that's a reason that a lot of people travel to certain places like i can't tell you how many people i've talked to who essentially say i'm going to choose my next vacation based upon the kind of food that i want to eat what place has my favorite foods and you know it's not something i would ever think about but it's definitely important for a lot of people yeah anything else just having a nightlife i I realized this after spending not even a significant amount of time in Montana where everything closes at 8 p.m. Or working mm. in Irvine where everything closes at 8 p.m. It's just ridiculous. You know, we live in a modern society. Lights are on everywhere. We have phones. We don't sleep <laughs> until like midnight, man. I need things to do if I get bored. Sure, yeah. In the middle of the night. That's just what I want. No, I, I can understand that as well. It was great when I lived in Korea that just nothing closed. There yeah. were always 24-hour convenience stores on every corner. Magical. You can it's beautiful. have soup or fried chicken delivered to your house at 2 a.m. It's no problem. There is a, just a built-in convenience there that you don't use that often, but like it's nice to have. Yeah, it's just good to have. Like the back yeah. of your head. That safety. Like I'm sure that's yeah. how people with guns feel. They're like, oh, well, I never have to use it. In fact, my head makes me feel better <laughs> than I have it. Okay. No, you're right. That that is that is I think uh, how they feel a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah, and even like living in France, everything was closed on Sundays. And here, like I'm used to back in Los Angeles, coffee shops staying open till 10 p.m. Some of them till midnight. Yeah. And here, coffee shops close at six, five. Yeah. You know, like you you're not doing any work in the evening. It it very much constrains your options in terms of what you can do where and when and yeah it's nice to have that yeah. okay I'm, I'm with you on that and you're definitely the kind of person who likes to read in a coffee shop for several hours yeah well and at, at night you know like yeah and daytime that's for suckers uh, since we're on this topic i will complain a little bit about some of the stuff here like there's a coffee shop pretty close to where i live here uh-huh. and it's only open from 9 a.m to 5 p.m right mm-hmm. and i just don't understand how a place that is supposed to serve people that like people are supposed to go there and like drink coffee and stuff. How does it stay in business if it's only open during business hours when everyone's at work? Like, I just, I I don't even understand the concept. Wouldn't the hours when you get business be like 5 PM to 9 PM? It's like a restaurant. If a restaurant was only open 2 PM to 5 PM, that'd be insanity. Yeah. It wouldn't last very long. It's true. Yeah. I I just, I I just don't get the idea. Maybe Ireland has the high unemployment rate. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't, but yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know anything about Ireland. Yeah, I know. It just bothers me. Because it's okay if there are things that I don't like, if they at least make some sort of sense. But when I don't like them and they make no sense to me, it really starts to bother me. It is weird that they're not open at like 6 a.m. Yeah, they're not open early and they're not open late. So no one can get coffee before work. Because everybody has to be at work by 9, pretty much. And no one can get coffee after work, because no one gets off work before 5. I guess you can go on your lunch hour. I mean, how good is there coffee that you're going to waste your lunch hour going there? I mean, it's fine, you know? Like, it's as good as other coffee. All right, ladies, generally, rarer in Ireland, stay away from this place. 9 to (laughs) 5, coffee's average. I didn't even say the name, but yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but you know it's by where he lives, so if you ever see him, stay away from that place. sure. Okay, was there anything else? Anything else that you had? Um, right now we've got food and okay. restaurants open so, late. I like how different 
things are in Long Beach. Okay. Like how strange it is? Yeah, that's a part of it. I like that we do weird things like paint buildings just for the sake of it and have a hockey team that nobody cares about. Oh, yeah, the Ice Dogs. I forgot the Ice Dogs existed. Yeah, and like a roller derby team that's like crazy popular on Instagram. You know, just weird just, things just that are stuff. Okay. Yeah, that you know, you're just like, yeah, that that sounds like the city that you've described. You know, like that's Long mm. Beach, that's L.A. You know, that distinction, that sort of weirdness to it. Yeah. There's another thing that I would really like in a city. Like Long Beach has neighborhoods that are like really nice neighborhoods that are mm. almost in walking distance of the most terrible neighborhoods. Right. It gets that's, crazy. That's like up the street from where I live, there's like a place that's like million dollar houses. Mm. Like it's a very wealthy area. And then just a couple of blocks up from that is like the hood. Yeah, the worst part of town, yeah. Yeah. It's it's very weird. It's crazy. It's something how, I've like, always found bizarre about Long Beach. Because when you go to most cities like mm-hmm. there are a lot of cities in the US that are train track towns, I guess. Where right. on one side, there's a good side of the city, and then on the other side of the train tracks, it's a bad side of the city. And you find that a lot with a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, for us, it's like the country club, the richest part of the city, is a couple blocks from the ghetto. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Yeah. And granted, if you go further east, there's only just like the nice part of the city. <laughs> well, no. Like, even there, there are lots of different parts of that city that real nice parts are close to real poor or shady parts you know you get that going from downtown to just beyond downtown you get that oh, from yeah. going from both of the country clubs you got what lakewood country club and you've got uh-huh. uh what's the other one virginia I, sure i don't know what they're called yeah I don't know the names of it doesn't matter you you have that for a lot of different neighborhoods where you go from a really nice neighborhood like right down by the coast to that whole area around poly which is not the best uh, yeah, oh, you, no, you get that no, a lot, which is which is a bit odd, and yeah, I, I've never understood how that happened. And neither do I. I. I don't get it either. But I sort of like how easy it is to just get a different perspective. Mm. Like you could drive through the city and see eight different neighborhoods that are in eight different you know socioeconomic classes, or that are yeah. segregated racially, or that you know have you know a not large population race, really. well but right like, yeah. but i mean they kind of segregate themselves right self-segregated sure <laughs> yeah or that just happens to have like a really large gay population and then two blocks over it's just like a bunch of all the cambodians gangsters yeah, yeah and then not all sure. the cambodians and etc it's just it's it's very it goes back to your first one about diversity yeah yeah but i guess this is more socioeconomic diversity than it is yeah. ethnic diversity. i mean so you just want a really super diverse place where things don't close. Yeah, that's all. Sounds like New York. And lots of food. Yeah, I was thinking New York is probably a place that I would enjoy. Hmm. Because just because it's nothing ever closes. And there's all sorts of people, which means there's all yeah. sorts of food. I am still eager for you to go live in a different place because it's it's interesting that so many of the things, like obviously I think those things matter in terms of your experience. Mm-hmm. But those aren't the things that I think of as really important. Like those things really matter if you're interacting with the people. If you're not interacting with those people anyway, it doesn't really matter. The things that matter in terms of like how far is it to your grocery store, how far is it to your work, and how do you get there, and what modes of transit do you use, and oh, you know, I like thought those were just like clothes. givens. 
But those change a lot in different places, you know. That's true. You're taking the bus, or you're taking the metro, or you're taking a car, like, or you're taking a bicycle. Those are all very different transportation options that change your life a lot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that is that is cool. Yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of having things be open late at night. Like that is a thing that I did not value enough, and having things not stay open here. Like some things stay open, kind of late. Like I mean, they have bars and things that stay right. open, but. You know what? Just actually, for you, John, I'm gonna go get a bowl of pho at like 3 a.m. tomorrow. Nice. Thank you for that. Yeah, I yeah, appreciate it. Because I can. You know, it is interesting though, because here I eat at home so much, like I eat in, mm-hmm. that the diversity of the food options matter much less than they used to for me. It used to be a huge thing, and now it's like, yeah, sure. Huh. Well, I feel like you weren't much of a homebody ever. No, I didn't used to be. Do you want to move on to one of the not follow-up topics? Yeah. So, John, I know you have this obsession with really old things. Uh-huh. And origins and details of numbers and words. <laughs> and, uh-huh. And all these other things. And so, I know you're talking to me about... I, I can't remember for the life of me what it was. Okay. I think it had to do with numbers or counting. You would remember better than I would since you're obsessed with this stuff. Yes. We were talking about different number bases. Ah, there we different are. Different number, number systems okay. and how those work. Yeah. All right. Okay. Just a quick aside before we get into it. And I think we mentioned this when we talked about education, but something that I think is a really important shift that people should have in their minds when thinking about mathematics mm-hmm. is that what you really need to have a good handle on is numbers, not yes. math. Like math matters, obviously, but to be good at math and to have math be easy, you just need to be able to manipulate numbers really well and understand how numbers relate to each other. And that yeah. is a much simpler thing, but it takes time to think about numbers. And something that is, I think, neglected in terms of people working with numbers is thinking about number bases and numerical systems so to go back way back before time we have obviously roman numerals right like roman numerals are this very old system that everyone still knows because they were held on to for important dates in europe until recently Mm -hmm. like i walk around graveyards here and you still see graves from the late 1800s that the year is listed out in roman numerals and things like that oh that's fascinating yeah yeah it's it's we should get into that later okay yeah sure But obviously, Roman numerals were replaced by what we call Arabic numerals, which actually come from India. It's all the same. Just kidding. Yeah, you know, it's all all down there. Which actually, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but just to go on the linguistic side of things. Did you know that Turkey is called Turkey because everywhere, like in every different language in Europe, essentially they thought that Turkey came from a different place? And so Turkey which actually came from like the United States, it came from North America, was thought to be this exotic bird that came from like different parts of the Orient or what have you. So uh-huh. in the UK, they called it Turkey. If you go to French, they call it Dind, which is like India. Uh-huh. And so like every different country in Europe is like, oh yeah, it must have come from Turkey. It must have come from India. It must have come. So in the same way with the numbers, it must have come from somewhere down there, like somewhere that's not here. Man. So, Arabic numerals. Yeah. The English language is so good at being racist. It's not just and English, just, though. It's French. It's, it's German. It's, you know. 
know, but they just they just stuck that on. They're like, well, that's that's the name of your country in English now. It's Turkey. I don't think that's that racist though. Like we call hamburgers, as we talked about hamburgers, because they came. The, the, it's the style that they use in Hamburg. Like, I know. Is but, that racist? No, but I mean, they were just like, oh, this foreign thing. We'll just call it turkey. Yep, that's what the country's name is. Or like, you know, indigenous people from North America are Indian. Like, they're just Indian. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's Spanish what we call does that it, too, though. They call them Indians. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fine. All those Latin Germanic languages. All European languages. Yeah. Yeah. Super racist. Really, I think it's just all languages. But yeah, I'm completely with you. Only it is people of light complexion, John. Only. Right, <laughs> That's where racism is. Only white people. Yeah, only uh, they can be racist. Language is interesting with that, and it's even more bizarre because turkeys came from English colonies. So, like, how the English didn't get that right is is bizarre. But that's beside the point. Back to number systems, real quick. Yeah, number systems. Uh, so yeah. Roman numerals were replaced by Arabic numerals. Which are actually Indian. Which are actually Indian, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a thing that everyone knows happened, but not very many people I talk to think about why it happened. So let me ask you, Mike, why do you think we replaced Roman numerals with Arabic numerals? And it's not like there's an actual right. solid answer I we mean, haven't written in stone somewhere, but maybe why would you guess? Maybe it was just like more convenient. Maybe it was more like aesthetically pleasing easier to use in math i have no idea there's there's the thing yeah easier to use in math and more particularly it was easier to use in accounting Ah. right because roman numerals died out during the renaissance when italians and you know famous medicis and all of them invented like double book accounting and then like the merchant classes started to rise up venice became this huge power and trade became a huge thing as it had never been before and Mm -hmm. when you see these numerals sweep in they're sweeping in because it's just so much easier to use a system that has zero and a system that is digital right as a system that has digits right 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 as opposed to roman numerals which is not like that yeah yeah so what you see and it's actually i have this whole theory around the fact that the greeks basically stopped at geometry right they they did not develop any more advanced math than geometry okay yet the arabs during the golden age of islam and all of that basically invented algebra well why was that the greeks spent more time than anybody thinking about mathematics and they developed geometry long before anybody else and developed it in a more advanced way than anybody else and i would argue that the reason they didn't move past that was because their number system was so cumbersome that it was incredibly difficult to work with things algebraically. So they had this block because they didn't have essentially the technology of an effective number system in order to do that. That's fascinating. You know, that's probably true. Yeah. We should ask a historian. (laughs) Well, it, it, like it would be a hard thing to answer, right? Because it's like, why didn't the Greeks invent like the Roman arch, for instance, right? Romans used arches all the time. The Greeks never used arches. Why didn't that happen? It would be a really difficult question to answer why that didn't happen. That's true. But certainly I would say the number systems must have constrained progress in that direction. Makes sense. So that's kind of the development of number systems. And I think that shows the impact that a number system can have. But number bases are an even more interesting thing because they change the way numbers relate to each other. So I think a lot of people have heard of binary. 
I'm sure they have. Okay, so binary is the lowest base that we can essentially use. It's base two. And what that mm -hmm. means is there are two possible digits in one column before you have to move to the next column. Like if you're counting up, right? Right. And you're writing in binary. And this is a little bit hard to do in audio, but let's say you so you have zero and you have one. And those look like normal numbers to what we would use. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to write two, you write one zero. You move to the next column. Hmm. Okay. And so it's a base two system because you can only write two numbers before you have to move to the next column. And our system that we normally use in the entire world is a base 10 system where you can write 10 numbers. You can go zero up to nine before you move to 10 and you move to the next column. Right. Okay? And you can use any base essentially to count. But the problem with using a, like a base two system is mm -hmm. that numbers become very, very long, very, very quickly. And so it's hard to comprehend what a number is when it's 30 digits. Right. And so we use a base 10 system, but most people believe that we use a base 10 system essentially because we have 10 fingers. Hmm. And that that's where that comes from. And that that's just kind of the happenstance. Because when you look at mathematics, having a base 10 system actually makes most mental math much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And, oh man, there's so many aspects of this that I want to talk about. I'm not going to get into units today. Maybe we'll come back to this and we'll talk Ask about... Ask a really dumb question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. Okay, just because, you know, if, if the whole ten-finger thing is true, you know, that's how mm -hmm. we came with it. Do you think if we had, like, six fingers on each hand, we'd have a whole different system? Yeah, I think we'd probably have a base 12 system, yeah. That seems so... I don't know. It's bizarre, right? Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's funny. I, anyways, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> So I'm not going to get into like scientific units today at all because that's that's a whole big rabbit hole to dive down. But yeah. just in thinking about like proportions and how we measure things. So mm -hmm. just, just think about how we use numbers. If you have base 10, you can divide that in two and then you get fives. But once you want to divide that farther, it becomes very, very difficult. Mm. And when you're looking at something like centimeters or when you're looking at measurements of any sort you can divide it in half but it's hard to divide it in thirds it's hard to divide it in fourths but we are as just creatures very able to divide things in halves and quarters and things right. like that like that's what like visually that's what we can easily do we can look at something and say yeah that's about half and then we can look again and say yeah that's about half of the half Mm -hmm. But we cannot visually look at something and say, yeah, that's about three out of five. That's just a much more difficult thing for humans to estimate than right. halves. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at a number system, let's just take base eight, because that's what most people think is kind of the most efficient. You could take base eight or base 12. Either one of them works really well. But if you take base eight, just the simpler one, the lower one, mm -hmm. it's easy to divide in half, but it's easier to divide in fourths. Very easy, right? Yeah. And so when you look at the old English measuring systems, like inches and feet and things, and I know I said I wouldn't get into this, but like what you, what you see is feet have 12 inches, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's easier for us to estimate. It's easier for us to do math in. Okay. And you see that with a lot of the imperial measurement systems that it's done so that people can do the math easily in their head. Whereas metric was created by the French 
during the, well, I think it was actually created before the French Revolution, but it was put into use during the French Revolution because they thought it was a more ideal, like, enlightenment measuring system that was more consistent and all of that. And while it is more consistent, it's also less effective if you want to do math with it. Right. And the only reason why we went into metric is because we wanted to make it all conform to our base 10 numbering system. If right. at the time we had changed the numbering system to like base 12 instead of base 10, then we would have been able to stick with the measurements that already existed and mm -hmm. have mental math be much, much easier. Yeah. Anyway, so th th this is this is the idea of an of a base numbering system. And, and the reason why binary is used in computers is because essentially they have little switches that they turn on or off, right? And so they only can have two options with those switches. And so they have to use a base two numbering system to identify either the switches on or the switches off. We don't have that with most numbering systems because, you know, you, we use them for different purposes. Right. But yeah, I have been a big proponent for years now of shifting to a base 12 numbering system, but that is such a big and difficult shift. And, and when we eventually talk about units and measurement systems and, and all of that, we'll get into this a little more, but it's, it's such a huge shift that it's very difficult to think that it might ever happen. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the chance feels slim. They're, they're very slim, like but these, zero. Well, but these, these changes do happen. That's true. Like metric took over the world and it didn't even really exist before 1800. Not in America. <laughs> yeah, true. Not really in Ireland or England either. That's what's up. Yeah, you know. Yeah, England uses the weirdest hybrid system. <laughs> that seems like that would be really annoying. Oh, it annoys me. It annoys me. All of the cars have miles per hour on their speedometers, and they have signs that are miles, but sometimes they have kilometers, and they talk about meters. They never talk about feet. And so they have this weird thing where they still use miles most of the time, but they never use feet, and it's just like, uh, that's just can't be dealing with this. That's just like pick one, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then obviously for beer and stuff, they use pints and things like that, and and they use pints for a whole bunch of measurements, but then they use liters for like milk, and they use liters for most liquids. And they use pounds and stone for people's weights, but they use kilograms for all food and most other things. And it's just like, oh, oh, oh man. Uh, oh, yeah, and they do use feet sometimes. The only time they seem to use feet is for people's height. So they talk about what? people's height and feet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's just, it's a very strange system that has all these old remnants because they couldn't get rid of them. But, yeah. Can you bleep things out, John? Yeah, of course I can. F***ing idiots. Yes. I just, gosh. I just needed to know before I said that, because that just yeah. seems idiotic. It just seems really inconvenient. Like, that doesn't help anybody. I'm just no. frustrated. I'm frustrated for you. Like, yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, it doesn't really bother me, on. because I've lived in countries that use metric, and I've lived in countries that don't use metric. So I have a pretty good sense for both of them and how they relate to each other. But because they don't use like pounds or feet for almost anything, they don't seem to have a very good sense for how they relate to like meters and kilograms and things. And so it's just, it just seems so much more difficult for everybody that lives here. It's no good. No, no good, at, good all. at all. Uh, jinx. 
the future. <laughs> yeah, we have on here we've talked about the future and we've talked about some things that we think might happen and the difficulties that would arise with these sorts of occurrences, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked about not aging in the past. And I, I'm curious with you, Mike, what technologies do you see as truly world and society changing? Because when I look back, like there are some things like electricity, like the internet, that just changed everything. Right. And then there are a lot of smaller things like, I don't know, Velcro, you know, that change stuff, but not really. Right. So when you're looking at the world today and things going forward, what technology for you is the most world-changing technology on the horizon that you're most excited about? I mean, I don't know how on the horizon it is, Mm. but I do think it would be very societal-changing. Okay. Because, you know, we're always talking about fusion. Ah, yes. We have all those, like, the Large Hadron Collider somewhere in Europe. I forget where. Switzerland. CERN. Yeah, Switzerland. CERN. Yeah. And, you know, they're having two atoms, like, smash into each other at, like, crazy speeds. Two electrons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for correcting me. No, they do atoms, too, I think. I don't really know. They do a whole bunch of stuff. That, to me, is, like, really fascinating. Because I'm just like, if we're able to do that successfully... I feel like that would phase out a lot of a lot of things with regards to like uh, providing power. Well, in fusion, I, I would agree. Like, it, I think it is on the horizon because they now have. I think there are two different reactor projects in the U.S. that have gotten to positive net energy, so they have gotten out more energy than they've put in, which is like a sustainable fusion reaction. Then, right? It, right. They haven't gotten it so that they could scale it up in any useful way. Mm-hmm. But right now they're in the midst of building in France this just enormous uh, fusion project that is going to be like 10 times the size of any fission reactor, I believe. Um, it's, it's just, it's absolutely enormous. And the idea is that within, I think it's supposed to be done in the next year or two, they would hopefully have the first industrial sized fusion reactor that would actually work. Because the whole idea is that you need to get to yeah. a certain scale with it before it can actually work. Right. And yeah, no, I think you're right. That would that would have a significant impact on society. I don't know how that would work in terms of scale. Mm. But I feel like it's like one of those things kinda of like a computer where they're gonna just make it like really massive first. It's yeah. gonna just have the bare minimum of effectiveness. And then sure. from there they're just gonna learn how to scale it down. And down and down. And granted, I don't really know how any of this works, so I'm probably talking nonsense. No, but I think what you're saying applies to almost every technology that we invent, right? At first, it's very ineffective and it's very inefficient and it's very expensive and generally much larger than it needs to be. And over time, we make it smaller and better and lighter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually, imagine being able to do something like that successfully, having like a battery that'll last who knows how long. Mm. decades century centuries yeah yeah and i feel like that would change a lot of things well i I think fusion is especially interesting when you're thinking about space travel Uh because i think solar power is the natural alternative to fusion Uh and that's kind of the path that we're more walking down and we're much closer to but the problem with solar power is that you can't take your energy with you you can't take fuel with you 
Right. And so if you were to actually try to do any kind of interstellar travel, or even if you're moving out to the outer regions of the solar system, like uh-huh. you get so much less solar energy that it just becomes impossible to do anything right. in any kind of sustained way. And so you would need something like fusion in order to sustain yourselves out there. Because to bring fissile fuel, to bring stuff for fission, it like it's so much heavier and it's so much less efficient. That, right. You know, the costs are dramatically worse. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, like, I, I, I don't think you're wrong about fusion. And the thing that everyone's always talked about fusion is this clean, endless, cheap energy for everyone, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think we are actually moving to that with solar already. Right. And I think a lot of the gains on Earth that you would get from fusion, we're already going to get from solar. And it's uh-huh. it's an odd thing to think about. Because the energy industry essentially takes $3 trillion out of the world every year. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like that's the economic value that it absorbs. Right. And when you look out, if we were to get to the point where we were essentially fully sustaining ourselves on solar energy, uh-huh. you get to the point where that drops to close to nothing. Because once the solar panels are installed, the cost of running them is negligible. Huh. And so you're essentially looking at a potential future where energy prices are not at zero, but pretty close to zero. Like they would be tiny compared to what they are now. Right. And thinking about how that would change society, like it just, just tossing it, it's kind of, it, it becomes kind of like the internet, right? Where right. essentially what the internet did in a lot of instances was it took existing economic situations and just put a zero in the cost of scale, right? So the cost of reproduction was zero. Uh for a website or for a podcast like this. Anyone can download it and it costs no additional money to download it because sending stuff, information over the internet is so cheap. Uh Well, when you get to the point where electricity is that cheap, well, suddenly driving places is much cheaper. Suddenly trains are much cheaper. Suddenly everything, like running factories, like it, it changes the economic calculus for just about anything. And most of the estimates that I look at expect that we will be fully transitioned over to renewables with uh, solar being the primary uh, renewable by the late 30s or the early 50s, like somewhere in that range. Wow. That's right. within our lifetime. Yeah. I can't find anyone. Well, there are people, but most people are agreed that it will probably take over before 2060 completely. Wow. And so that means we're going to be looking at a reality where we get another wave like the internet that just completely reshapes all of economic activity. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes. As large of an impact as that will have, and I know it will have a huge impact. Right. In my mind, there are two technologies that have the potential to have a much, much greater impact that okay. are really world-changing in a way that nothing else that we've ever gotten, maybe since fire has been. Okay. All right. We're comparing it to fire. Or maybe maybe since agriculture or like domestication of animals. That's probably closer. Right. Yeah. Those but, aren't major things either. Fine. I know, right? And, and these two things, and I only really want to talk about one of them. Just mention both of them. Okay. Okay. I'll mention both of them. So yeah, genetic engineering uh-huh. and artificial intelligence. All right. So which one do you want to talk about? I want to talk about genetic engineering because artificial intelligence, I think, gets hashed out a lot. And there are a lot of questions around it that are very interesting, but it's hard. It's impossible to foresee 
what the actual impact of artificial intelligence will be. Right. Okay. Because for that, you would have to predict what the intelligence would do, right. essentially. And that's not a thing that you can really predict. Genetic engineering, I think, is fascinating because it brings up a lot of problems that don't have answers. Or it's like the answer to the problem is the problem. Right. And to, to explain what I mean by this, it goes back to Brave New World for me. And that's a book written by Aldous Huxley that when I was in high school, I read. And mm -hmm. what that book did for me is it took things that I viewed as obvious and important and valuable for society. And it looked at what their possible outcomes could be, what their long-term future could be, and saw that if we take them to their logical conclusion, it could simultaneously be a great thing for society and destroy society. And so... That's not far off. No, no, you're right. Yeah, and so for genetic engineering, I see the same kind of thing where if you look at the progression of humanity and the progression of people, what you see is us constantly striving to create new technologies, constantly striving to be more athletic, to be, be more intelligent, to be more capable. Like That's what you want. That is the ideal. Right. And if you look at human genetic engineering, it seems insane to suggest that we shouldn't pursue the ideal of improving ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what people are currently messing around with in terms of mitochondrial transfers and things like that, you see that they're doing things essentially to eradicate diseases. So that's right. the most obvious way of improving ourselves, right? Like you would want to eradicate diseases. Mm -hmm. if, if you found a way to like genetically engineer cancer away so that it's not a thing or genetically engineer Alzheimer's away, like you would want to do that. There's, no, right. there's nobody, I don't think, that would say, no, we should leave ourselves flawed in those ways. Right. But when you take that to its logical conclusion, you end up getting to the point where two problems arise for me. One is you have the issue of inequality, that mm -hmm. these processes will be extremely expensive and they will entrench whoever is able to get them in being better than everyone else. And this okay. is something that is kind of obvious, I think, to most people, that if you can engineer yourself and your children to be better than other people, you can be smarter, faster, whatever. Right. That you're just going to get more wealthy and more able to engineer yourself in better ways. Right, yeah, and cap grows exactly. like exponentially, right? Yeah, there's no, there's no catching up at that point. And, and so essentially either everyone gets it or you start to create classes that are entrenched by more than just societal stigma. Because, I mean, what we've seen throughout history is you have caste systems arise and you have classes arise in society. But those right. classes are essentially artificial. Like they don't, there's no reason that someone in the Middle Ages should be a serf or that someone should be a lord other than right. their parentage. There's no actual capability difference when they're born for the Just most part. luck of the draw, right? Exactly. But this would be, there actually is. These people are actually superior in measurable and obvious ways. And so by our normal standards today, there's no way that you could argue that they shouldn't kind of be above these other people because in a meritocratic system, as we've tried to pursue in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, you want the best people to rise to the top. You want the most productive people, the people that are doing the best stuff for society. Mm -hmm. And yet when you can engineer that and you can choose that, what you're doing is you're saying, these people, we've chosen to be the best. 
Right. And that creates a weird moral thing where you have a caste system arise, but it's reflecting the things that you want to arise. Right. And I don't know how to get around that. You know, I have to wonder, and I know this is, it's going to sound weird. I'm not really sure how to phrase it or even ask the question. Okay. But, you know, when you're deciding who these people are that should be the best people, and you are obviously going to alter them to be the best people, right? Yeah. Do you pick from the best unaltered people? Does that make mm. sense? If you want, like, the ultimate athlete. Right. And there's a dude or a woman who was just born and happens to be, like, faster and stronger and have better reflexes than their peers in whatever sport it is they're performing in, just by luck and genetics before any engineering is involved? Is that the right, person right, right. that you're going to want to engineer to be even better and even stronger and even faster? Like, is there a limit? Well, I don't think... No. I would guess that you wouldn't need to do that. I mean, obviously, in the early stages, it's anybody's guess. But once you get to the point where you can actually engineer for, let's just say speed. Let's say you were dealing with sprinters. Right. If you can change people's traits so that they're better sprinters, I don't think there's any reason that you would need to start with already fast people. Because you can change... Right. somebody's traits so that they have the traits of the already fast people but does that mean that like competitions really wouldn't be a thing anymore would everyone just be the same speed well and and this is where it's hard to know because so many of these things would be probably trade-offs and then so much of this would come down to training well right. i mean assuming that they all have the same opportunities to train equally right well but i think you see now that a lot of people just looking at sprinters again like hussein bolt like, if he didn't train, he wouldn't be the fastest person in the world. It doesn't matter about his genetics. And so it's the choices people make throughout their lives in terms of their diet, in terms of their training. Those things will have at right. least as much of an impact as their genetics in terms of athletic competition. Yeah, well, if people are genetically engineered to be fast, right. for whatever reason, maybe their parents are just like, yeah, we want this kid to be fast. Make them so that they're the fastest they can be yeah like they're obviously the goal those parents are going to have for their child is to raise them to be you know a sprinter sure and so they're going to get trained and what i mean right. is if this is how things start to get done is anything going to be competitive anymore if you're choosing your kids to be an athlete right well and this is where you enter the i guess the unknown because for me i mean i know all of this is kind of speculation but there are kind of obvious imperatives in society that push people in certain directions and that's where i was talking about that class divide that opens up uh -huh. but with this sort of thing it's really hard to foresee what the imperatives would be that would push people because i would guess the people that are engineering their children are going to try to engineer them to be broadly good at things uh -huh. they would be engineering them so that they're just better at everything well yeah but there might be some people who aren't necessarily thinking one thing is as important there definitely could be people that specialize yeah yeah and so and just... then you get into the weird thing that you've probably seen on in sci-fi movies and sci-fi books where you have these weird mutant superhumans that are really good at one thing and they're really really tall and so can play basketball really well or whatever it is like right but that makes me also wonder if you can make someone just better at everything are they just the best at everything then well no because i think so much of it is based upon your actual experience well no i mean i know but would they have the potential to just be 
the best at whatever they do. Yeah, it's hard to know because it, it would probably involve trade-offs, right? But if you can afford to just enhance everything, does it just become this this super person that once they you know decide on something and they apply themselves to it, boom, instant success? Possibly. Like I, I think that's that's a real possibility. But I, I do think that genetically they're will probably always be some sort of trade-offs. Like when you look at humans and their closest relatives in the animal kingdom, right? You look at like chimps and other mm-hmm. primates and things. Right. What you see is we have dramatically larger brains yeah. and dramatically weaker bodies, right? Yeah. And yeah, that I mean, has happened very quickly. And, and so right. you probably could not maintain the strength in the body at that level and have our brain function at this level. You know what I mean? Like you... No, I There were I probably understand. Some, some sort of trade-off there. Okay, so I'm going to use mixed martial arts as an example. Okay. Because it's like the only thing I can think of that, that sort of I can use as an example when I'm thinking okay. about this. Good example then, if it's the only uh, one I can think of. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I could use basketball too. Yeah, okay. let's I'm use basketball and mixed martial arts. Let's use both of oh, them. Oh, okay? double whammy. Yeah, so there are some fighters who are very mediocre fighters. Who had sure. very like middling careers. They weren't especially effective in their specialty. But mm. you know, once they retired and they started training people who were just physically superior athletes, yeah, they could get those fighters who they trained to do the things that they could never do, and have them become like wildly successful fighters. You know, mm. yeah, by by having them implement things they could never implement. Okay. Okay, and then a specific example. From basketball okay i'm gonna use larry bird as the example because yeah. the way i understand it larry bird was like a very intelligent player true yeah he He's was also very one of good. the best players of all time yeah yeah but i mean i guess compared to some of his contemporaries he wasn't the most athletic player but he was I mean, just he wasn't so Magic good johnson sure right but he was just so good at like reading the court that he could make a play two or three steps before everyone even knew what was going on yeah and sure, so he could think the game much better right and so I was just wondering if you had someone who had his kind of like understanding of the game and ability to read three or four or five steps ahead mm. before doing anything they were going to do, right? And then you were able to genetically engineer them to play like, I don't know, have the physicality and athleticism of like LeBron James. Yeah, yeah. Like, where would the trade-off be there? Do you think that there'd be a lot of sacrifice... Well, but, for intelligence see, think, to get that sort of athleticism? Or do you think there'd the, be people who have that kind of intelligence where they will be able to use that genetically engineered athleticism and that genetically engineered intelligence to think about the things they that, want to do and then physically be able to do them? I think it's much less cut and dry than the situation you're describing. So here's here's one of the things to think about. Facing challenges and facing difficulties and struggling and being worse than other people changes you in a fundamental way in your lived experience and facing those challenges can often cause people like if you're looking at basketball and you see a lot of people who grow during college right and when they enter college maybe they're six two and they're like a point guard and they're on the ball all the time and so they develop these incredibly good ball handling skills and then during college they grow like eight inches and suddenly they're six ten and they're like a power forward and because they had to spend so much time developing those ball handling skills, now they have those ball ha- handling skills, but they're a giant. When you see that sort of thing, because of their experience, they were able to grow in this 
interesting way. It is somewhat unusual. And if they had just been 6'10 when they entered college, they wouldn't have ever developed those skills. And so I think that sort of thing where if you're just the best all the time, you don't necessarily have to develop those sorts of skills. Like, for instance, I know a lot of people, and this is, a, I think, a common stereotype of really smart kids in school, that if you're really smart and you're in class and you're always the best in your class, then often you don't learn to study very well. You don't learn to try hard. You don't right. develop that work ethic because you don't yeah. have to. You can just cruise. Uh-huh. And that often serves those people poorly later in life because they haven't gone through that crucible. They haven't had to develop that skill set and that kind of grit that other people have had to develop. And so people that are somewhat less intelligent than them and had to struggle at times will often come out better once they're out of university, what have you. And so I think it's hard to have it be cut and dry that you say there's an obvious trade-off. Like I, I think it, there probably is a trade-off there that is hard to know at this point. But mm-hmm. I think so much of these sorts of things is based upon your actual experience and how hard you're trying and how often you're doing stuff. Like when you see people in basketball who are just incredibly dedicated and shoot free throws all day, every day, they get really good at free throws. And it's hard to look at somebody like Shaq, who was really bad at free throws and say, well, was he bad because of genetics? Was he bad because he didn't try very hard? Was it a confidence thing? Like it's hard to find the root of that. And I think you would still have that with a lot of people where they have struggles or they're really good at something and it's hard to parse why. And so it would be hard to engineer around that when you're trying to get results when somebody's 25 or 30 and you're trying to engineer from birth, that sort of thing. Mm. These things are difficult. And that's one of the reasons why I think people would so much be more focused on general greatness. Also, generally, the people that are super rich want their children to be well-rounded. They don't want them to just be like hyper-focused. Right. But that brings me to the second problem. Like if you do have people that are hyper-focused and things like that, you start to have this divergence in genetics. And I think right now when we're talking about... Would you force people to meet each other? Or since genetic engineering is already a thing, that's not necessary at all. Yeah, I would think that would not be necessary. Because like Uh. forced matching is how we bred animals, right? And that's actually why Uh. at the beginning I brought it back to agriculture and animal husbandry. Because like that was the first iteration of genetic engineering. But once you can actually go in and do it manually or do it, you know, in the code, you don't need to do that kind of rough (laughs) thing Mm. of having people mate with certain other people. Imagine if in this world there's a couple. Mm. Yeah. Right? They decide to have a baby and they can change the baby to their specifications. Do you think that would cause problems between couples if, you know, the wife or the husband we're like, oh, I want the child to have this thing that's nothing like the thing that you have because this thing's better than the thing that you have. Oh, you have always, straight hair? I'd really love for the child to have curly hair. I always love how you come at things with perspectives that just baffle me. Uh, well, cause, I, I mean, I've never thought about that. Like, yeah, I mean, what you're saying makes sense. Because I just have to imagine that these like big, giant, society-changing sort of things, they're definitely bound to have these small... These small little impacts on people, yeah, issues. like yeah, yeah, these these weird every day to day sort of problems. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, certainly you would probably get conflicts within couples where one person is like, "No, I want them to have green eyes like me," and the other person's like, "No, I want them to have brown eyes like me," and 
that sort of thing. I could definitely see that. I mean, people are petty, you know? Like, that's, yeah. that's that is a universal thing. Yeah. So would it create even more animosity between people on, like, a wider scale when you're walking around with brown eyes because both your parents had brown eyes and they decided to genetically engineer you with brown eyes? Not just let nature take its toll because you'd probably end up with brown eyes anyways. And then you see yes. homeboy across the street whose parents both have brown eyes but really wanted their kid to have green eyes. Mm. And so now you're just like, why does that person... Like, would it create a lot of jealousy? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it creates a lot of problems because your identity derives from who you are, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's no more base thing than who you are to derive your identity from. And if you're talking about people tinkering with who you are, it's it's hard to not have jealousy because it's one thing to say, well, you are who you are, accept that. Right. And that's essentially where we are now. But we're starting with people who are getting sex changes and things like that. We're starting to move into a direction where people actively try to change who they are naturally and shift that into who they think they should be or who they would want Mm -hmm. to be. At the moment, for the most part, it's people making that decision for themselves. But when you have that decision being made by other people, it becomes difficult. You're essentially saying, I built you. Yeah. So you're becoming more like a machine or more like a computer. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Well, and, and this actually goes to the second major issue I had, which is defining what is human starts to become increasingly difficult. And defining people's rights starts to become increasingly difficult. And when you tie this back into increasing intelligence for computers and artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. which I don't want to get into too much, but like when you start to see that and you start to see that advancing and you also start to see humans diverging in terms of what they are, you start to run into issues because, okay, so just to think about an example in cinema, Mm -hmm. when you think about X-Men movies or you think about X-Men comics... Mm -hmm. that's essentially what you're having, right? You're having like that. They say that it happens naturally or whatever, right? That it's just a thing that happens. But when you look at it being engineered, you start to see the same thing where now you have two distinct classes of people and the X-Men actually work well because they're all different in their own way. Right. So these people won't necessarily be all the same. They might, they might be different in different ways, Mm -hmm. but you have this divide where, the people who aren't altered don't look at them as being human. And to a certain extent, some of the people who are altered don't look at the other people as being human or not, or even if they look at them as being human, they look at them as being inferior. Right. And so you have this superclass that looks at everyone else as being inferior and you have the underclass that looks at those, the superclass as being not human and not like, I don't know, real people to a certain mm-hmm. extent maybe. And defining who has rights and who has powers and how that is controlled is a huge societal problem that I don't think is easy to navigate. That would create a lot of societal problems because we're assuming that the people who have been modified are probably going to be the people who are in charge of businesses and it's going to be the wealthiest people at first. Right. That's totally going to lead to some kind of revolt. Yeah. Like, there's no way that isn't. But as you see the advancement of artificial intelligence and as you see the advancement of robotics, like mm-hmm. I remember when I was living in China, I was talking to one of my friends who's an engineer and he was essentially having this argument with another one of my friends. Essentially what my engineering friend was saying was, it's going to be a really 
strange world when robotics gets to the point where I'm not only richer than you, but I can just send my robots to kill you. Like, I don't have to do it myself. So you having a million people against me, one person, doesn't matter if I have a million robots to go do battle with you. Oh. Suddenly the numbers don't matter necessarily because you can enforce your will if you have the wealth and the technology. And you see that to a certain extent now because you have, you know, whatever, war helicopters and tanks and things like that. But you still need huge numbers of people to man all of that. Right. And if you have millions of people that turn against you, you can't necessarily hold them down. But Mm -hmm. when you get to the point where you have robots that can do these things, you don't need the numbers anymore. Mm. And if you got to the point where you had genetically modified super beings who controlled robotic armies and i know this is very dystopian but you get to the point where you know you could have a small portion of the population really dominating and controlling a very large part of the population now i am reassured that because i think people throughout history have gradually become more sympathetic and empathetic toward each other that people won't want to cause mass suffering just for the sake of causing mass suffering yeah but then i think if you got to the point or you had robots doing everything for you, mm-hmm. and you could just easily dominate a group and have any good trait you ever wanted and pass down every good trait you ever wanted down onto your offsprings. Yeah. Why don't you just get rid of all the people? Why do you need them? I mean, that is a very kind of utilitarian way of thinking about it, I suppose. But this is my point about empathy, that I think increasingly for the last several hundred years, people have moved toward this thing of understanding other people and wanting other people to be happy and have good lives just because they exist. But I feel like something like genetic engineering at that at that point where it's no longer to avoid any health concerns and it just becomes about looking better and being better, I think it would create a lot of vanity and I think it would kind of remove some of that empathy. It would create this very like self-centered, arrogant, I'm better because I'm the best. I was made to be the best. Oh, if you're not like me, it's because you you're making an assumption about their perspective, though. Like, I know. I mean, like, because I want to be better at things and I want to learn all the time, not just so that I can be better than people, but like I want to learn to be better so that I can do things better and like live a better life, you know? Mm. Like, I don't think sure. everyone that wants to get healthy and like lose weight is just doing it because they want to be attractive. Like, certainly that's a motivator for a lot of people, but. I think most people want to be better people because they want to be better people. That's fair. I'm just saying if you already are a better person, your great-great-grandparents have been a better person, all you know is being a better person. Right. Like that's all you are. That's the only thing that you know is being better. I feel like that would affect how you see things. I don't understand what you mean by you're only better. Like that's all you are. Well, because if you're born and you're like genetically superior to someone – yeah. That's something you're going to hear throughout your life. Well, you're better than these people. You're, sure. you're more than them. You're better than them. That becomes your identity, you know? Yeah. It does get you back to that kind of medieval right to rule thing that like right. the nobility saw themselves as inherently superior. Except it's actually true in this instance. Right. And so if after several generations of just reinforcing this fact that you are superior to these people, right? Yeah. And then you have an army of robots to do all the labor and take care of everything and fight battles if you need them to. And now there's all these worthless, inferior people. Maybe they're just taking up space on your continent that you could have more space of if they weren't there. It seems very yeah, possible to me that they would just start wiping out people. Like, I think that's possible, but I think it's unlikely. Like, th- think about it from a different perspective from humans. Think about dogs. 
tons of people all over the place try to have rescue dogs and save dogs and things like that. Dogs are literally the incarnation of what you were just describing. They are inferior. They serve no productive value. They just take up space and consume resources. And yet I think there are very few people who, if you said, hey, should we just go exterminate all the dogs in the world? No one would be like, yeah, oh, that's definitely yeah, a thing we should do. That'll make everything people better. People like dogs for companionship and love. But people like humans for companionship and love too. Like, why, why do you right. think people keep other people around? It's not because they annoy them. I would assume that the genetically superior people would have other genetically superior people around. Yeah, I mean, I foresee a future where once you get to a certain break point where enough people are genetically superior or enough people are genetically modified, I'm not sure superior is the word we should necessarily be using, <laughs> enough people are genetically altered that they might neuter the non-altered people. Kind of like how you would remove a disease, right? Where you're mm-hmm. like, let's inoculate ourselves against this disease, this disease of not being I don't know, super strong or whatever, right. whatever it happens to be. Um, yeah, or that, maybe that that's how we get issue. elves. That's how we become immortal elf-like beings? Yeah, that's how we get elves, through genetic engineering. I could see it, yeah. yeah. Well, and this is, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of view this as potentially the next leap in terms of evolution. Once you can start to modify yourself to be better, it's kind of what people have talked about, about their fear of artificial intelligence, that once it can alter itself to make itself better, then there's no stopping it from being increasingly more advanced. And if you start to be able to alter your genetic code so that you create yourself to be superior, like you do start to move toward this direction of being these all-powerful, super-intelligent beings. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to think about, I think. Yeah. There's just so many things that could happen. Yeah. But on the flip side, like so many people now are talking about, you know, banning genetic modification and, and not allowing people to, like, clone themselves or genetically alter people, especially on the germline, right, which is saying that it would be passed down from generation to generation. And I understand that because it's so much in its infancy and people are so afraid of unforeseen ramifications. Right. Certainly it's a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. The stakes are very, very high. But I can't foresee very many arguments that are very compelling to why we should never allow this to be a thing. No, I'm on board with you. I personally want genetically superior overlords to start (laughs) wiping me out once they get bored of us. Uh, No, but no, like honestly think about it though. Like if you can make human lives better, everything in our society for hundreds of years has been focused on making human lives better. Yeah, like I can't see someone being like, oh, I figured out how to get rid of genetic death diseases like uh <laughs> hutchinson's or what's it called huntington's there we go huntington's yeah, like yeah like why would or parkinson's why would people, or yeah par- or yeah like any one of those it's just like yeah. why wouldn't you be like yeah let's get rid of that let's get rid of diabetes let's get rid of yeah. every yeah. terrible disease like who's gonna well, and tell that's them where it no, starts right wrong? it starts with getting rid of diseases and then it progresses toward other things yeah and to the designer stuff. That's how exactly. it all starts. It all starts well, with, and oh, I, don't, I think it. designer stuff is way down the line. Like what you were talking about, about picking eye color. Like I think that's way, way down the line. But I think getting to the point where you want to make yourself so that you can't get asthma or maybe you have better metabolism or things like that. Like that's on this borderline right. where you're making yourself healthier and you're making yourself better, but it's not vanity type things. Right. And I think slowly you move down that path and eventually you get to the point where you are altering everything. Mm-hmm. But there is a point where you stop being what we would recognize as humans 
And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing. Probably not. I mean, eventually we would just be the next step. Right. Yeah. Super sapiens or something. Yeah, super sapiens. (laughs) Yeah. See, this is why I want to live for like seven, eight hundred years, just to see where things go. Yeah. No, I'm with you. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so possible for us to do that. Like when we talked about that long life episode. Uh-huh. So many of these technologies are arriving so much more quickly than we anticipated them arriving that I think it's very likely that these things will dramatically reshape society during our lifetimes. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Uh-huh. Okay, you want to wrap this one up? Yes, I do. Okay, I will talk to you next week. Yaman? Yeah, All right. Talk to you then. All right. Cool stuff. Later. Peace.